0: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomiki Konst. Thanks for your patience. Just a heads up, completely outside of my control. There is some construction going on outside of my window because that's what it means to live in a city. Uh, Joe Biden will be inaugurated in 64 days. But as progressives, we really do need to suit up now because Donald Trump is not at rest. He is not transitioning. He's in denial. He is in full Donald Trump chaos mode. And he is doing weird and very scary things, like blocking the transition is just one way to to describe what is happening. So pay attention to what Trump is doing while holding Biden at bay. He fired the defense secretary and most of his top aides because they refused to send U.S. soldiers into American cities last summer to suppress the Black Lives Matter protests. Then he installed cronies to run the Defense Department, and as the top lawyer at the National Security Agency, a job that isn't even supposed to be a political appointee. This is all what has been going on in the last two weeks. That just happened today. So where is Trump going with this? Well, for one thing, with no one to resist him, he has delivered yet another blow to that NATO alliance the alliance that most of the Pentagon and national security community views as the essential barrier to Russia meddling in aggression. So take that however you want. But it is an alliance that exists. And he did this without even telling the NATO allies. Trump spread the word that he was going to pull troops from Afghanistan. Now, we all want these wars to be over and buried. We talked about in the majority report just now. Without a doubt, troops need to be out. But he is sowing the same sort of chaos, not just abroad but also at home. Biden is right. People will die if the Trump administration doesn't start working with the new Biden administration on managing the COVID-19 pandemic. We are at an 85 percent spike from last week. We have a record number of cases. It's getting colder. People are going inside and we're, it's probably just going to get much worse around Thanksgiving with many folks who are in denial about COVID and some who just want to be with their family, possibly going to be spreading it uh, when they go home for Thanksgiving. Right now, crucial choices are being made about the equity of the response. A government group meets next Monday to decide the order in which people will be offered the new vaccines. Given the horrifying way in which COVID swept through communities of color on Trump's watch, we need to be certain that that will change like right now. And by the way, that applies not just to the distribution of the vaccines in the United States. Trump has refused to join a global project to deliver vaccines to poor countries. This is just basic fairness, but it is also self-interest. Scientists say that getting the vaccine to everyone will halt the pandemic faster. Fewer people will die. The US needs to be part of this, 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 this alliance in making that happen. The pandemic and the Pentagon are just two of the places Trump is sowing his chaos. Extra support for Americans thrown out of work expires at the end of the year. Biden takes office on January 20th. Are we really going to have to leave people to feed for fend for themselves for those three weeks? In the holidays, nonetheless? What happened to the stimulus package now that he was talking about? And then there is the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. Trump has announced a plan to sell oil drilling rights there with the first approved awards on January 17th. Yes, you heard that right. Donald Trump proposes to give oil companies the right to damage one of the last pristine wilderness areas of the country three days before he leaves office. And for oil, we don't actually need, especially if Joe Biden keeps his word to lead the transition off of fossil fuels. Biden should announce right now that he will reverse these sales the day he takes office, because most likely that will scare off most of the bidding. Now, I can't enter the mind of Donald Trump to understand what moves him into this madness, but this isn't just politics anymore. These are matters of life and death. Actually, they've always been that. And the security of the nation and the planet. As progressives, we can't wait for some old style orderly transition either. We need to be loud and forceful on demanding the right things right now on all of the issues. We need to amp up and not get distracted by skirmishes like the divides over who will be labor secretary an already uphill battle that even unions can't agree on and the left can't agree on. So it's a divided uphill battle. Donald Trump can do a ton of long-term damage in the next 64 days. He is checking off his list to our alliances damage, our health, our economy, and our environment. Chaos at home, chaos abroad, chaos with the environment for the long term. Like we need real pushback and demands for full transparency on every decision about the distribution of COVID vaccines and treatments. No last minute drilling right sales and proper stimulus package, a proper stimulus package right now when Americans need it. That should be at the top of the the immediate concerns in this Georgia race, and an immediate start to a proper transition with all information shared with the Biden team. To be blunt, the rest of the Republican Party needs to get over its fear of Donald Trump. Your cowardice helped create this Frankenstein. And of course, the Democrats unwillingness to actually push back against Republicans furthers that along. He is the monster of the establishment. He is the monster of the Republicans. So they need to find some spine and and rein him in. They need to stop worrying about Georgia or 2024 or your own race in 2022 or whatever. Just focus for a second on the good of the country for 64 days, the health and safety of Americans, and tell him the show is over. The show is over, Donald Trump but our show is just getting started. We have a wonderful show today, guys. We are talking about Bolivia with Anya Parampil, and then later we are going to be uh, chatting with Napoleon de Legend, and Chris Halali is back, our favorite Vermont communist. We're going to talk about his race and also uh, Bolivia as well. But first, here are the news at the top of my newsfeed. Moderna reported high efficacy in its COVID vaccine trials, which means that stocks have risen and the markets are booming. At this point, the U.S. has logged over 11 million COVID cases. Other good news for investors? According to reporting from NPR, President-elect Joe Biden's advisors said that at the moment, nationwide lockdowns to respond to the virus are off the table. Meanwhile, Cases are higher than they've ever been. And we still need to guarantee that the vaccine will be made free to all Americans so that the cost is not a barrier to health protection for all. Good news for investors is bad news for us. In the last days of his administration, as we just said, Trump is parceling off parts of the Arctic National Refuge to sell to oil and gas companies. A lasting part of Trump's legacy will be his commitment to exploitative uh, drilling practices and his seizure of native land for drilling further. Goes to show you that this project is another facet of the United States empire build- building, of course. <sighs> this is a big problem. I'm, t- I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm livid about it as I'm sure you guys can, can see because it's just another aspect of the greedy land g- grabs that have been going on for decades on both sides of the aisle. Biden should hold Trump accountable for threats that he posed to democracy and to public safety while he was in office. But it looks like that's not going to happen because liberals and conservatives aren't the enemies that we think they are. According to a Biden advisor, the president elect just wants to move on without being burdened by federal tax investigations or charges, things that they campaigned on. But it's impossible to overlook the damage that Trump has done in office and Biden's refusal to hold him to account is another reminder that America takes a tough opposition party in this country, needs a tough opposition party in this country, and not just at election time. All right, guys, we will be right back. We're gonna be talking about Bolivia, and then later, we're gonna be opening it up to the panel for a conversation. Hey guys, welcome back to the Nomi He Show and the drilling outside of my window, which is, I'm hoping you guys are not picking it up because it's driving me crazy. (laughs) Um, But that is nothing like hearing bombs go off. So I am just grateful that I'm in a safe spot. Uh, All right. We have wanted to cover this for a bit, and I'm I'm sorry to our audience that it's taken so long. The electoral cycle, of course, just consumes everything in the United States, especially when you have... um, crises pop up every single day. But I'm really grateful that Anya Parampel, who's a host of Red Lines on the Gray Zone on YouTube, uh, is here to talk about Bolivia. And of course, the elections that took place recently and the rise again of the left in Bolivia. Anya, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Nomiki. It's great to be speaking with you. Uh, so I love your setup. That's great. <laughs> it's always great like, when you have I a like reveal. your purple light. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they have to give out those compliments, right? Um, all right. So you know, let's let's just start sort of from the begin. I'm mean, not the beginning, beginning, but uh, let's start from like 2019 and the coup um, to remind folks of of what took place last year uh, when there was this election and 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 how um, Eva was. Re-elected for the fourth term, I believe, correct? And the constitution, he got approval to run again. And and then what happened afterwards? Can you give just remind folks what went down last year? Sure. So you're you got it
1: right. Evo Morales was running for a fourth term last year, representing the MAS party or Movimiento al Socialismo, the Movement Towards Socialism party, which had. Really ushered in an era of prosperity in Bolivia for the past. several years that he that he led the country he would reduced extreme poverty by somewhere around 60 percent uh, he was the first indigenous president of bolivia which is actually the country in latin america with the highest percentage of indigenous people so he really represented uh, the majority of the country finally seizing power and ruling in the country and he received approval from the country's Supreme Court to seek this fourth term. And what happened was, after the vote took place, uh, the country's electoral service, it, it, its electoral tribunal, began counting the votes. And, and the vote happened on a Sunday. And that Sunday night, as you can imagine, it was much easier for the electoral tribunal to count votes from cities, which happens to be a base of support, not necessarily solely for the neoliberal parties in, in Bolivia, but it has less support for the MAS, the Movimiento Socialismo Party, than the more rural areas. And so as the vote was coming in, It's actually very similar to what happened in in this country this year. It looked as though the neoliberal candidate Carlos Mesa was poised to win on the night of the election, kind of the way that it looked like Trump had a chance at winning the election this year. But then in the days after the vote counts started coming in from the rural areas, similarly to the way the mail-in ballots were, were counted in the days after the election this year in the United States. And Morales surged uh, in, the, in, the, in the vote and actually ended up winning. And because of this change, the Organization for American States, which is the, the kind of smaller branch version of the United Nations, which focuses on the Americas here is based in Washington, DC, declare the election was fraudulent, said it was impossible for Morales to come back with this major victory. And then right-wing groups really terrorized the country, started terrorizing union workers and the bases of mass support, and eventually drove Evo himself out of the country. He had to go into hiding. They ransacked his home. They killed his dogs. And he had to flee initially to Mexico and then to Argentina. And this woman, Janine Añez, a previously unknown lawmaker, essentially was announced as the, the country's new president and then
0: oversaw a year of very brutal military rule in Bolivia. So you were saying, OK, so the election takes place, they seized, um, they, they took over his home. Uh, Evo had to go into exile in Mexico and then Argentina. And, and, and he, was, he was pushed out out of fear for his life, right? It wasn't like there was this decision, this overriding. Dis- like I guess the question is, why is that OIS, let's just go back a little bit in history, is able to determine the outcome of this election when internally Bolivia seemed to decide on their own that he did rightfully win.
1: It's a good question. It
0: it brings back the, quote, of
1: the Cuban revolutionary Fidel Castro who referred to the OAS as the Yankee Ministry of the Colony is that it's essentially a tool of the United States. We've seen this, for example, in the way it's dealt with the Venezuela case when the United States recognized an unknown opposition lawmaker as the president. The OAS flouted its own rules and recognized an ambassador representing Juan Guaido. And it really just goes with Washington's agenda. I believe Washington contributes to around 60% of the OAS budget, which is an absurd amount when you consider how many countries there are in the Caribbean, South America, and and, and North America. So so it's really just an organization which really provided cover for Washington's policy in this instance. And the media, unfortunately in this case, initially went along with what the OAS had to say about, about the election. And it wasn't until a few months later that, well, actually within weeks, a, a, a think tank here in Washington, D.C., the Center for Economic and Policy Research released a report which completely took apart the OAS's analysis of the vote in Bolivia, explained why it was very reasonable to see a surge in support for the MAS as the rural areas were counted. And and I can say from myself, after having been to Bolivia and witnessed this most recent election as actually an official electoral observer sanctioned by the Bolivian government, their system is pretty difficult to hack. On every level, It's it's observed and watched by not only observers from the international community, but but just people come in and they're allowed to photograph ballots. They actually witness the tally take place. It, I, I tweeted video of it for people who want to see, but they actually hold up the ballots, show you, it just has pictures of the candidates where they're marked, and then they tally it on a, on a sheet behind the, the table where they're counting the votes. And then those votes are uh, kicked up to the Electoral Council. So it, it's hard to really manipulate that vote. And... And it wasn't only the Center for Economic and Policy Research. MIT released a study debunking the OAS's report. So the OAS was really at fault here. It, it, it's really what the organization that's to blame for allowing this military government to take over. Fortunately, Bolivians were able to defeat that takeover just a few weeks ago.
0: So this is really interesting to me because I, I, what I don't really understand is like, Why? Why right now? I mean, he reduced poverty. Uh, he's very, uh, clearly very popular. Uh, the, the, what was this, like, what is the geopolitical gain for OAS to get him out when it, it doesn't seem like he's a, he's, he's a good president. He's not a, he's not a threat. It's not like he's calling for the dismantling of, you know, capitalism entirely. And I mean, he's not a, he's not a revolutionary, I guess is the best way of saying it.
1: Well, in the context of Latin America, many people in Bolivia and in the region really do see him as as someone who stands up against the boot of U.S. empire and of capitalist interests. He, for example, was discussing nationalizing the country's lithium supplies. Lithium is a key resource that's needed for any number of reforms. When we talk about the Green New Deal in the United States, whether it's electric cars or batteries to power our 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 future, we need lithium for that. And so that's why you had a figure such as Elon Musk saying he was right. joking when he said we could coup whoever we wanted, but but that's what he was talking about. He was talking about control of resources in
0: Bolivia. Uh, so there is there is that element. But it's, but it's still not revolutionary. I mean, like nationalizing, I mean, he's nationalized a different, you uh, nationalized gas, correct? Um, I mean, yeah. this, I think we've gone so far right wing in the United States that the basic concept of nationalizing your key industries should not be revolutionary. Well,
1: I think there's also the, the, the point to consider is that within the Latin America context, since really the very early obama years there was a there was a concerted attack on left wing governments in latin america beginning with the coup in honduras that came in the form of a very brazen military takeover then we saw more Difficult to understand or or view as just brazen coups, but lawfare campaigns in Paraguay and Brazil, which removed left-wing governments, and, and it's been a slow domino effect. Ultimately, now we have the Trump administration discussing the troika of tyranny, Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Those are the The main prize is at the end of this domino chain, but the United States has been targeting left-wing governments in Latin America, flipping them in favor of right-wing leaders such as Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's implicated in drug dealing in Honduras, or Bolsonaro, who's really just now seen as one of the faces of the right-wing movement, even among the liberal class in the United States. And Bolivia was an important domino on that chain, I think, in in terms of reorganizing the dynamic in Latin America, waging a war on left-wing movements, uh, which really were allowed to thrive in some ways under the Bush administration because they were so focused on policy in the Middle East. We saw so many governments, left-wing governments, pop up even progressive governments comparatively rising in Chile and and countries such as that. And so now this wave is trying to come back. It's trying to come back in Brazil. It's trying to come back in Honduras. And it did come back in in Bolivia. And I think even just basic reforms uh, do really threaten the interests of the United States and, and of capital in
0: the region. So yeah, it- that's, that's what seems to be very strange to me is basic reforms um, are, are seen as such an aggressive effort against the, the interest. But I think you know in the context of the waves, this, this makes more sense. So in terms of the election that occurred last week, can um, you describe, uh, actually, before I get to that, like when this was all going down, I mean, you've been following Bolivia, you've been there. Um, when this was all going down, how did the Bolivian people respond? To the coup itself
1: from what i well it was very difficult because the there was this element of of right-wing terror vigilante terror police terror military terror in the streets immediately following the coup there was an element there was a feeling that i got talking to people who who lived in the aftermath of the coup, that there was an effort to purge the, the support for the Movimiento al Socialismo. And, and we saw that in the form of massacres, which took place. The anniversary of one m- massacre is actually tomorrow, November, 9, or is today the 17th? On the 19th, it's the anniversary of the Sencata massacre, which uh, took place immediately in the first week of Añez's, Janine Añez's rule over Bolivia, the military opened fire on a vigil that had been held for victims of a separate coup, which occurred in a place called Senkaba, uh, Sacaba. And the the military killed at least 10 people in that instance. And then afterwards, there was this It was very difficult from, I I spoke to one woman whose husband actually survived the initial massacre, but then experienced incredible racism when he was seeking treatment for a gunshot wound, doctors saying that uh, this was because he was indigenous supporter of Moss that this had happened to him that he was to blame for for the fact he'd been shot by the military and also cursing the wipala flag which is the rainbow flag many people probably have seen which represents bolivia's multi-ethnic indigenous culture and the coup government made a made an effort to remove that flag to remove that symbol from official government life and there was there was a severe crackdown on on su- the supporters of the mass throughout this year, but that didn't stop them to get to your question. How did people respond from rising up and actually forcing this election to take place? It would not have happened without the masses of the people in Bolivia demanding their right to vote. This election was scheduled on four separate dates. And every time the coup government delayed it, canceled it, came up with an excuse for why the vote couldn't be held. And it got to the point that the MAS, which is really just a conglomerate of unions and and different uh, social movements, went on massive strike, essentially shut the country down and said, if you don't let us vote, we are not only going to shut down the country and threaten the economy, but we're willing to put our bodies on the line and fight for, for the return of democracy in Bolivia. And so it was that response, which ultimately enabled the democratic takeover of the government once again, but it wasn't simply this act of voting at the ballot box that overturned fascism or the military rule in Bolivia, what it really truly was, was massive organization of the people and of the working class.
0: So the, the election um, took place and, and it was the, the results were extremely clear. Um, and, and now uh, Evo has, has returned to Bolivia. Um, is there fear that they're going to come back with some other effort to suppress the movement now that they've gained so much power? mass.
1: There certainly was initially a plan, according to Bolivian media, just in the last few days, we've heard that the military was floating options to carry out a coup once again. And Janine Añez was actually supporting this initiative, but there wasn't broad support in the military for for that uh, move. And since Luis Arce, the new president, has, has been sworn in over the last week. It appears as though he's made an effort to purge some of the elements, the pro-U.S. elements, certainly the people who were overseeing the coup and the police and the military, and put an end to to that initial whispering about, about carrying out a coup. I don't believe that it will happen in the immediate future. But it's certainly a long process for Bolivia at this point in terms of of reimagining or reworking its military. That was one element of the country which didn't really change as part of the the process begun by Evo in, in 2005. He doesn't come from the military the way, for example, Hugo Chavez did. There wasn't a civil war in the country. For example, the way there was in Nicaragua, which forced a reorganization of the military. Instead, there was just this democratic takeover and and the military still remained largely influenced by the United States, individuals trained at the School of the Americas in in high ranking positions in the military. So that is going to be uh, something that the new government will have to manage. Uh, But for now, it seems the
0: immediate threat of a military coup has been defeated. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the new president, Arsa, and and his background?
1: Yeah, he's someone who actually served under Evo Morales as his economy minister in, in the early years of his administration and is really credited with undoing many of the neoliberal policies and projects which led to the high levels of poverty, especially among the indigenous community in, in Bolivia. He is someone that's looked at as really someone who is responsible for the massive reductions in poverty and the growth that Bolivia experienced under the years of Morales, which is very important because at this point in Bolivia, partially because of the outbreak of COVID-19, but also just because of gross mismanagement under the coup government, the economy is really in shambles. Uh, One statistic I heard from a colleague there was that around a third of Bolivians are unemployed at the moment, and much of the country's industry was totally shut down under the coup government. So the economy will be a major focus of... Of RCE's first months, he'll have to reverse some of that damage that was done. Hopefully, get industry rolling once again in the country, and, and do as much as he can with the restrictions of the 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 COVID outbreak to to get the the economy back on its feet. And that's really what it's. Seems the economy is what made the difference among the middle class in Bolivia when voting this time around. They experienced the year of the Anya's coup government and saw that, regardless of the outbreak of, of COVID-19, uh, the economy was just not doing well in Bolivia. And what's interesting is in Bolivia, voting is actually mandatory everybody is required to vote otherwise you can face penalties for example lose access to your bank account so what that means is the (laughs) same people for for three months or so that's what i heard the same people last year who voted for carlos mesa when he was running against abel morales this year voted for luis arce against carlos mesa it was the same candidate so that's a 10 12 percent of the population, you can, you can guess, estimate based on the results, switched within a year. And while that probably doesn't represent the base of the mass support, the indigenous and working class, that's more of the middle class, the people who can switch uh, on from one election to the next. And the economy was certainly a deciding factor for them uh, when they made the decision to vote for Arce.
0: That's fascinating. Um, How, uh, how has uh, Evo been since he's returned? It looks like he's just been very busy uh, from what I've
1: seen. My uh, uh, friend and kind of colleague journalist there in, in Bolivia, Ali Vargas, who I encourage everyone to follow. He, he's been following Evo on his return to Bolivia and reporting that he's sleeping two hours a night and, Just going from one city to the next, rallying uh, the popular movements, the social movements in the country, visiting his home where he was raised, I believe, in in the tropical region of Bolivia, and found that it had been ransacked, a car and other items, valuables from his home had been stolen by after the, the who government took place so he's I think rediscovering the country but also reviving it reviving this this really something that I wish we had here in the United States really organizations of, of unions and social movements that are really politically engaged and, and actively engaged I should say in the political process of the country and that that'll be his role he'll serve as sort of the spiritual leader the the figurehead of the the movement and I don't think he'll have a direct role in the government other than the fact that he has a relationship with, with people who are serving, but he, he's someone who will, the country and the people will look to as as the leader even if he's not officially at the helm. <sighs>
0: It's such a fascinating story, a tale of how he rose to power as a farmer, as an indigenous leader, and and to just see how. I mean, it captivated the country at a time when clearly, um, folks needed, uh, someone who represented and came from, those those back the the background of what is like one third of the country or a little bit over one third of the country, um, in economic times. Really interesting, um. I wish we could, I'd love to have you back on because I want to ask you much more detailed questions. But I felt like this was a good one-on-one for folks. Um, but thank you, Anya, for your reporting. Uh, we're going to be watching this super closely and love to have you back on very soon and see how the Biden administration, in particular, uh, responds and deals with these Latin American um, and Central American, uh, specifically, uh, ro- you know, leftist revivals. Because you know, supposedly this is this is a legacy of the Obama administration. Um, and I just be real, I'm really curious to see how how he interacts with these new so governments.
1: So am I, so am I. So we'll talk
0: again soon. Thanks, Nomiki. Thanks, Anya. All right, guys, we'll be right back with our panel. We're gonna talk about Bolivia. We're gonna talk about some of the other news items. Um, we'll be back in like two seconds. Hey guys, welcome back to the Nomi Kiki Show. This is the panel edition. If you're not already, make sure to smash that like button. Go click that subscribe. Go put that little, that bell, like ding that little bell because that's how you're going to find out if we're going live, or doing special coverage. Uh, and of course, just a reminder for those tuning in right now, they're, I don't know, they're drilling for oil outside of my window. And so I'm going to try to mute it as much as possible. So feel free to talk over each other, guys. I will just let you go at it uh, from the start. All right. We have Christopher Halali. He is a former congressional uh, candidate for Vermont's at-large congressional district. He is, he was a communist. Uh, well, he is a communist, but uh, he's also the chair of the Vermont Progressive Orange County Committee, as well as the Versher Town Committee of the VPP. I think, I got that all right. And of course, Napoleon Legend, who is an Afrobeat hip hop artist, an activist, uh, an artist and an activist. And, you know, we're just talking about coups. I, I feel like every time Napoleon's on, we're talking about coups. It's like the, the thing of the moment. All right, I just want to start off. Um, I don't know if you guys got a chance to listen to that interview. Uh, I mean, I know you've been following, I know both of you have been following this one on in Bolivia, but I figured this is a good kind of moment to discuss Bolivia and sort of introduce the audience if they're not already following it uh, to what's been going on. Um, but in particular, I'm. I'm very curious. My last question was about how the Obama, excuse me, the Biden administration, I should say, um, really relates with Latin America, given the legacy that President Obama had um, in in Honduras and Central America, but also this uh, this this dichotomy with his relationship with Cuba and like opening up business in Cuba. Um, I'm just. I'm. I, let's let's just throw out some predictions. How about that? Uh, I'll start with you, Napoleon, you know, how do you think Biden is going to respond uh, to what, what do you think his Central American and and Latin American policies are going to be?
2: Well, I'm not expecting too much from Biden. Uh, I I think it's going to be, um, like he he said, return to normalcy. So I think he's more or less going to trace, uh, what the Obama administration was doing and and the rest of the neoliberal politics of the past. And try to move him onwards. We could hope that he will learn from past mistakes and see that that's not at all the right course and at least the more more destruction. But do, I want to stay optimistic. But uh, I, I'm not expecting too much from from his policies when it comes to the South America, any type of change.
0: I mean, it's it's. I think like. The difference. The reason why I asked this question is it's just so clear now. It's it's hit the mainstream. People understand that the child separation policies were in, instituted by uh, Secretary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, and and a lot of the the ex, expanded border policies, you know, forcing folks back to the border of Mexico and, and Central America. I mean, it's it, it just. I think folks realize what happened now. Maybe maybe I'm. Maybe I'm not, I don't know. Maybe they blame it on Trump. But even if it's Trump's fault or Obama's fault, Biden's got to deal with it. And he can't keep the same strategy if he wants to pretend to be a Democrat. So I feel like he's got to. And also, there's different leadership now in many of these countries, more leftist leadership. I mean, what is he going to do? Stage a. Chris, let's, Christopher Halali. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I agree. I agree with Napoleon. I mean, I, I, the Monroe Doctrine is alive and well. I don't see much of a difference. And if you see already the team that Biden is assembling, I mean, even people like Susan Rice. I mean, this is like liberal humanitarian interventionism. We're going to be back to the same old, same old coups. And uh, really, you know, you don't even have to do military intervention. You can do economic warfare, more sanctions, more crippling, you know, make the economy screech. Um, like the, the US government loves to do all over the world. And I don't see, I don't see any difference. On foreign policy, uh, I think Joe Biden is going to be a continuation of Donald Trump in, in, in many regards. And in fact, could even be worse because uh, he already has said that he doesn't really want to you know, bring troops home from Afghanistan. We want to have a permanent military presence in Iraq, keep the troops in Syria, uh, expand possibly drone actions and you know covert actions so i'm really concerned for not only latin america but for the entire global south uh, at this point because uh, you know we, it's just a continuation of of you know the obama administration which really ramped up the wars of the bush administration
0: i guess my only thought is it's just it seems like people are just more awakened now and 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 are are, are, are angry about this um I want to add one thing. The president of Mexico, I mean, I don't think this has changed in the last day, uh, is is gained uh, the presidency from a leftist coalition that included a populist right. Um, important to say because the dynamics are different. And he he acknowledged the coup in Bolivia, but he does not acknowledge the, the – the, he, he has not congratulated Joe Biden. So geopolitics right now in the global south and with America is – is really mind-boggling. I think for most general Americans. So, I mean, Chris, you, <laughs> this is sort of like your your specialty. So, like, what's going on there?
3: <laughs> how can uh, AMLO, you not I think, know that Trump lost? <laughs> I think I think Amlo I, the, the 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 reaction and sort of you know how people are are perceiving it is a little bit different from how it's being you know said from Mexico, which is basically. You know, we're not going to intervene in the internal affairs of the United States of America. So, basically, a respect of sovereignty of the United States. Once the United States uh, declares uh, the winner, official results are in, and there's a a transfer of power, then recognition can happen because the US will do it on their side. So, it's basically not trying to, you know, go ahead of the normal processes that happen in an internal. Uh, government in other countries. And this is actually the policy that the U.S. should have abroad, because, you know, if, uh, if uh, Maduro wins an election again, they're going to say, oh, no, it was rigged, it was fake, it was, uh, there, was there were irregularities, and Guaido is the, the new president. That's just not how other countries try to operate, because they really want to respect. And, of course, Mexico, uh, I guess, AMLO has a, has a good personal relationship with Trump, that's good. I mean, we, people should have good personal relationships with people who hold the nuclear button, I think, so we don't end up in a situation where people <laughs> are lobbing uh, missiles at one another. And I just think that he's waiting to let the internal uh, mechanics of our system play out, and then uh, it'll be smooth transition. Napoleon, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, w- w- what he said, I mean, uh, he. Uh, I think they're they're playing it safe. You know, the, the, the safe thing is just to wait till everything settles. Uh, Trump has put a lot of confusion, a lot of, threw a lot of smoke in the game. So they're just waiting for everything to clear and not, not take unnecessary steps. Because I, I've seen some countries like in Eastern Europe, I think it was Slovenia, one of these countries that already that had congratulated Trump that did something like that. And they're gonna look crazy once Biden comes into power. You know what I'm saying? So I, I think everybody's just kind of more, they're playing it safe, you know?
0: also he's so so that leads to Trump sixty four days um, left until Joe Biden's inaugurated, uh, and I mean. <laughs> We'll see. But I'm, I'm going to put, I'm gonna put like my bets on like 98% chance that he gets inaugurated on Inauguration Day. Uh, but this is a year that has surprised all of us. So there's 64 days left. And Trump has just been checking off on his list, like everything, like the you know selling off the Arctic to oil companies, uh, withdrawing troops from Afghanistan abruptly, um, firing his defense secretary, putting in a new NSA, uh, somebody to head the NSA. And, and I can understand why Mexico might be be uh cautious because you know Trump who knows what he could do in response to retaliation um so look Christopher this is this is clearly peculiar behavior uh what do you think is going on
3: um, number one, I, I agree with Trump. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, he's withdrawing uh, troops from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Good. I, I withdraw all the troops and the wars. Sure. I mean, that's, that's that's a good sp- one. Right. That's right. But the, 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 the problem now is that I'm very worried, as are Iranian Americans and people who watch the Middle East, that there could be a hot war in Iran very quickly, because it looks like there have been back channel communications with uh, you know Trump, his team, and also with Netanyahu, with Israel, with the Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So I'm really, I'm really worried that uh, in the next 64 days he might open up a new front in the in in the U.S. Uh, uh, you know endless wars. So I'm really concerned about that. We should be very very careful the next 64 days or so uh, to really ensure that a strong anti-war movement is still pressuring the president uh, from the left and to take those people who consider themselves on the quote unquote populist right to also have them pressuring the president. Uh, and, and that's why it's a good thing that Anya and, and um, Max Blumenthal go on Tucker Carlson's show because if Trump's watching that, they can say, don't do any more wars, end the wars, non-interventionism because we don't want to see any more of those things.
0: Tucker Carlson, for those of you who don't know, advises Donald Trump. <laughs> True story. Uh, Napoleon, I mean, how, how does the left push back? I mean, at this moment, the anti-war movement, whatever that is, uh, you know, how do you assemble some sort of pressure points and making sure that you hold Trump accountable? This is how I let off the show. We have to hold him accountable. And then I sat there and I thought, well, how do we hold him accountable? And the only way I can think is exactly what Christopher said is through the right. But I mean, do you see any other way Napoleon?
2: No, I, I agree with Chris, like going on shows, even you like having voices like you on Fox and do, and, and, and throwing, throwing things like these ideas out there uh, for them to, to have to digest, to have to, to deal with is very important and uh, keep the pressure, like stay organized and, 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 and keeping the pressure. I mean, like to me, it's, it's almost like we're breaking off, like breaking up with a toxic relationship and it's like <laughs> the ending is always like very tough and very you know um, hard to, to deal with, and and we just have to make it past these sixty something days, and and we're gonna tackle like uh, another one, another issue. But like Trump is not is gonna create as much confusion and is gonna do favors for all his friends before he leaves for sure.
0: So I, I know I didn't send this to you in advance, but I, I have to ask given how Christopher. Um has, he's, he's, he's fought in the Mideast uh, as, a, as a revolutionary fighter. We should lead with that. Uh, he, he fought ISIS. Uh, he is, uh, you're half Iranian, half Greek. Um, and and that dynamic, I think, is an important question to ask because last week we we did a, a story, a, a segment about Armenia and this deal that has taken place in Armenia, essentially a ceasefire of some sort. But I think one of the big questions that came out of um that story that we did was really like the, the, the end goal being Iran and Armenia seeming to be this pathway through. And if you guys haven't seen it, you can go onto the YouTube channel. You'll find it. It's a couple of days ago. This, this interview we did, um, that Armenia is essentially this pathway to Iran. So remind folks why there, why Iran is such, um, a power grab for, for the right, literally the right wing in, in the United States.
3: Uh, well, it, it not only it's oil, but because it won't it won't kowtow to US, the U.S. Empire because it has had a principled you can disagree with the government all you want. We have disagreements with the government as well. But you have to give them credit for the fact that they've stood strong against the U.S. Empire since 1979. I mean, that's huge. I mean, that that in and of itself. Uh, drives the U.S. and especially the neocons absolutely crazy. I mean, if you're thinking about a project for a new American century, U.S. hegemony, how to maintain it, it's to demonize Russia and China to keep up that hysteria and then to really pressure all these smaller countries or just go in there militarily, you know, get rid of your Gaddafis, your Saddams, your Assads, try to get rid of your Maduros and your Castros. And that's what they're trying to do with Iran now. So, yes, it's all part of a much larger NATO plan to encircle Iran because Azerbaijan was working very closely with the Turkish Republic, as well as with Israel and the United States. Uh, They maintain good relations with Russia because you have to in the region, it's a post-Soviet Republic. But the the fact that Turkey is there as a NATO country, second largest NATO army, uh, is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous escalation. We know that Turkey is also in Syria, Iran is in Syria. There's a lot of contradictions in the region. And this is, once again, the heightening of the contradictions of, of imperialism. And it's a really dangerous situation because a much wider conflict. I mean, if you think the refugees coming from Syria were something, imagine a war in Iran. Imagine 80 million people now uh, in the midst of a war. And Iran is a much tougher enemy. It's going to make Vietnam look like you know a holiday uh, because it's going to be brutal. It's going to be brutal. I'm telling you. And that's why yeah. a lot of military personnel are saying, please, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And, and I don't know. I'm really concerned about it, as are a lot of people. Of course, what just happened in Armenia uh, in, in Nagorno-Karabakh was a tremendous loss for the Armenians. I mean, this is like a loss of territory yeah. that was, you know, there. Already,
0: a, already a, you know, exactly. a d- diminished
3: territory. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's um, it's it's very dangerous. The, the, the overall situation in the Middle East has not gotten safer. It's gotten a lot more fragile. Uh, and on the precipice of of something catastrophic.
0: What I just don't understand is, is is why are why flex these muscles now? I mean, I understand uh, uh, Armenia was not a doing of the United States, but why is Trump exercising these powers that he has in the final days? Think is about- it just because of Republican pushback, or I mean, what I I, I can't. This is this is such a mind boggle to me. I
3: would I would think about it in this way. Uh, if you're thinking about like the art of war and sort of you're thinking about strategy, in if you do these kind of actions, you want to see what your major global uh, you know sort of rivals will do in response. There wasn't a big response. It's not like Russia. Russia had troops in Armenia. They have bases in Armenia, but they didn't participate militarily. Even when uh, even when Azerbaijan dropped an airplane, dropped a Russian airplane, so. We have to look and we have to say, America is testing the waters. They, the saber rattling and of course the live fire, you know, the actual hot war, uh, is, all, is all willing to test the boundaries and the limits. And that's why the US tested the limits in Ukraine. And what happened? Donetsk, Lugansk and Crimea went, to, went, to, you know, went on self-determination. Crimea went right. to Russia and Donetsk and Lugansk declared independence. So right. you look at that and so the US now is testing how far will Russia go? How far will China go? And what can we continue to do uh, with impunity. I mean, we are the number one rogue yeah,
0: state. But why, why <laughs> is he leaving office? Why, that's what, uh, why is he leaving office? I,
2: I, mean, I would think perhaps it's uh, it's it was probably in the back of his mind after the election. That he probably thought he was going to win the election, and then he couldn't be elected anymore. So that was part of his, his second term plan, and he's just initiating him before before leaving. I, w- I would think that that's, what, that's why he's doing it right now. It's probably something that he had in his back of his mind for his second term and, and just uh, just starting it now since he, he has nothing to lose anymore.
3: And, and I also think that Trump has a very good relationship with Erdogan in Turkey. Yeah. So if Erdogan made a phone call that we don't know about, because a lot of these things we don't know, or there was back-channel communication and Erdogan said, I'm gonna help Al- Aliyev with this incursion and boom, you know, bullets start flying, missiles start getting lobbed at both countries. Uh, And Trump's basically like, okay, we'll support you. And uh, there's communications all over the world. And you end up seeing the result, which is a loss of territory for Armenia. Uh, uh, You know, thousands have died, tens of thousands displaced. Um, And you look at that and you say, wow, all that was done smoothly, really, for the West. We didn't have boots on the ground. We didn't have anything. But a phone call can get all that stuff solved. Um, So if Trump has these personal relations and Erdogan has these sort of ambitions in the Middle East, that's all it takes. You know and meanwhile
0: nato of course which they're a member of and or, or the eu i mean mm-hmm. does nothing silent just Correct. just exactly. sits there exactly. as they i mean not to mention as you know very well they're drilling uh in the Mediterranean, and, and like looking Absolutely. forward to stealing, you know, twenty and, islands. 30 and the islands key, from
3: Greece. the <laughs> key, the key here, the key here is Erdogan holds the Syrian refugees hostage. So he says, if you mess with me, I'm going to open the floodgates, and you're going to have five more, you know, five million more refugees coming in across the the European border. And of course, the European countries, most of them center right or right wing, are like, oh my god, we'll do anything you want. You know, anything you want, you go on, you can take Syria, go to Libya, go here, go there, support whoever you want. We're not going to mess with you. And that's why they're able to do it with impunity.
0: Fascinating. Um, there's a lot happening. I mean, that's why we, we want to cover these mm-hmm. geopolitical kind of experience right now because it's it's happening very rapidly. And and while folks are obsessed with the vote counting and, and the transition team, we also have to keep an eye on what's going on um, because he's, he's doing it with a phone call behind the scenes, as you said, uh, Christopher. to legend, Christopher Halali, always a pleasure. I'm going to go yell at the guy outside drilling for oil because this has been very difficult for me on my end today. <laughs> he's saying goodbye to everybody. <laughs> um, we'll see you next week. Uh, to everybody else, special shout-outs to everyone in the chat. Um, let me see if we have them up. If I don't have them up today, uh, I will make sure to get to them tomorrow. It's just been very noisy, as you know. <laughs> uh, we will be back tomorrow. And and I promise. Uh, oh, here we go. We've got the shoutouts. Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you so much. Alex Kerr, thank you for the love. David Q, thank you. Thank you. Full communism. Ooh, baby. <laughs> That's for you, Christopher. <laughs> uh, um, Kowalski from Nebraska. Causing coups in democratic nations of Latin America is one of our most... Um, in, is one of our most important experts, expertise here. Uh, we don't want those CIA agents unemployed statewide. Don't worry, they're on the transition team. Um, I meant export. Oh, export. That's one of our exports. Thank you. Shame on me and Mike. As Well, thanks for the love. Thanks to Harvey K and everybody in the live chat and many doctors uh, and Jules for working the algorithms and special thanks to Bob and our mods for keeping it troll-free. We will see you tomorrow, hopefully a little bit quieter. <laughs>